a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. I'm calling an audible this morning to 1 Kings chapter 18. You have listed your bulletin Psalm 51, but I think uh, this passage here that we find in 1 Kings 18 exemplifies one of the things that our Savior is speaking of when we consider our sermon text this morning. I hear Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. And I'd like us, as we hear this passage before us, to consider the great difference that exists between the prayers of the Gentile pagans to their gods and the prayers or the prayer of Elijah to his. 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll read verses 20 to 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, and, but let them put no fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Notice how they had been crying out for hours. And they limped around the altar. That they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, perhaps he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, perhaps he is asleep, and it must be awakened. So they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But still there was no voice, no one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near. And here was his prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and let none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, for our New Testament reading this morning. If we remember the first verse of chapter 6, is kind of the overarching theme verse of the first 18 verses of this chapter. So let's begin by reading in verse 1, beware, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now down to verse 5, so that when you pray, you must not like, be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask of Him. Rather, you are to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's Word. Let's go before the Lord and pray that He would help us to understand these things that He teaches to His children this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would hear our prayer and cause us to understand the instruction that Christ gives and how we are to pray, that we might enjoy communion with the one, the true, the living God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So why is it that we pray? What is our motivation for doing so? I think it's rather easy for us to forget that prayer is not a right that any of us have by virtue of our birth. Rather, prayer is a great privilege that is given to us because Christ has made the way that we could come near and stand before the presence of a holy God. And yet, how many of us treat prayer so casually? How many of us treat prayer so flippantly? Prayer is that great privilege whereby we are afforded the opportunity to enjoy fellowship with the Maker of heaven and earth. And yet, how easy our thoughts are directed towards lesser things in the midst of our prayers. How easy is it to be distracted as we're praying about um, the latest football game 
or the next meal that we're going to have, or the bills that are set before us, or perhaps our concern with how people view us when we pray in public. You see, the, the, the human heart is so sinful that we always, I think, find a way to make prayer about us. It's so easy, at least, to try to turn this religious duty into an act of self-promotion. See, when it comes to practicing our righteousness, which is the very theme that Jesus is addressing at this point in his sermon, that righteousness that God requires, we find that we ought to be concerned not only with what we pray, but also how and why we pray. As we're going to see this morning, the manner and the motive of our prayers reveals far more about our own hearts than we often realize. So I'd like to take this passage into two broad chunks. First, I'd like us to consider verses 5 to 8. We can simply call it how not to pray. And then we'll look at verses 9 to 15 somewhat briefly as we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that prayer in greater detail. But I'd like us to at least consider some broad features of how we are to pray. So how not to pray, verses 5 to 8, and then how to pray in verses 9 to 15. Well, here our Savior continues instructing us on what it looks like to practice that kind of righteousness that God truly requires. As we saw uh, just the other week in those opening verses, the first four verses, it was concerning the matter of almsgiving, caring uh, to the diaconal needs that attend people in uh, the congregation. Uh, And then in verses 16 to 18, he will consider the matter of fasting. But here, the largest chunk of this section concerns something that we are called to do on a daily basis. It's the matter of prayer. It's something I think that's rather interesting. Uh, At least recorded in Scripture, there's not a single instance where Jesus' disciples ask Christ to teach them how to preach despite the fact that they are commissioned to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. And yet what we do find recorded in Luke's gospel is that the very thing that they asked Jesus to teach them to do is they say, Lord, teach us to pray. They never say, Lord, teach us how to lead a Bible study. They never spend any time asking Jesus to teach them on how to run a congregational meeting, important as those things are at times. Rather, what they ask is, Lord, teach us to pray. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that prayer is so hard? And certainly there are wrong ways to go about doing it, and our Savior calls attention to at least two uh, false starts, we might put it, when it comes to the practice of prayer. Two features that He calls us to abolish from our prayer life. And what I think is interesting is what He calls us to get rid of is not necessarily the method of prayer, but rather the manner in which we pray. I think one of the things, I'm from the South, and what you'd see typically in restaurants more often than not, sometimes at least, is that you would find families gathered around the table, even in a restaurant, praying and asking the Lord to bless the meal. It's a great thing to see in a restaurant. It's very encouraging. And yet at the same time, there are some people who want to let everybody in the restaurant know that they themselves are praying. 
It becomes a massive spectacle, as if the whole spotlight is turned and directed to them. Again, praying in public is not a bad thing. But at the same time, there are ways in which it is done, in which it is super-duper awkward. At first glance here, we find that Jesus might seem to be criticizing all forms of public prayer. But I think what we come to find is Jesus is not criticizing praying in public, Rather, he is criticizing the manner in which prayers are made in public. You see this in verse 5. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Again, as we considered just the other week, the hypocrites, the, the, the actor wearing a mask on a stage, it's a persona, something that is not true to who they are. He says, don't be like the hypocrites, the actors, because they like to pray out loud wherever they go. Be it in church, right, the local synagogue in Jesus' day, or even out in the public on the street corners. We might look at this at first glance and go, well, what's the matter with that? Here's a man who practices his faith publicly. Here's a man who's not ashamed of the gospel. He says grace at the restaurant so that everyone will hear how utterly evangelical of him. But again, we need to notice Jesus is not criticizing the prayer because it is done in public. We find several occasions in the gospels where our Lord himself prays publicly. There is nothing wrong with public prayers. What our Lord is condemning is not that the prayers are done publicly, but rather that they are being done for publicity. What's the matter with the hypocritical prayer? What's wrong with it? Jesus says the matter is the manner of the prayer. And the manner of the prayer is the heart of the matter that Jesus sets before us. Why is it that the hypocrite prays? Jesus says, well, they pray not to be heard by God, but they pray so that everyone else would take notice of them. Hey guys, look at me. Look how righteous I am. Look how pious I am. It becomes nothing more than a publicity stunt. It is a hollow righteousness that turns communion with God into a selfie for the whole world to see. Our Savior is very clear on this. He's very abrupt on it. He simply says, stop it. Don't do that. If you pray publicly in order to win the admiration of your peers, then fine, that's your reward and nothing else. Enjoy it while it lasts. But it garners no favor with God. Our attention is immediately drawn towards the end of Jesus' sermon here in the Sermon on the Mount. When all these people say, look at all the public spectacles, all the things that we did in your name that they say to the Lord on the last day. Did we not cast out demons and prophesy and do all these magnificent features? How evangelical of us. Jesus says, who are you again? Go away. See, this this gets at a basic issue. This is a false start. How not to pray. Prayer is not about self-promotion. Prayer is not the time to shine the spotlight on yourself. Our Father is not looking for a spectacle. God has no guard for theatrical righteousness. It's a theatricality that has no place in the life of the people of God. Again, that's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor wearing a mask on a stage. It's all done as a performance piece. Jesus says, no, rather instead of that, because that really exposes why you're doing these things. You just want attention. 
The question is, who is it that you're seeking attention from? Do you want to get the attention of your peers? Fine, you can have it. But if you want the attention of the one that really matters, this is what you should do. You should go and pray where nobody else is looking and when nobody else notices that you're away. Go to your bedroom, your closet, go where nobody's going to notice. That's going to be the litmus test. That's going to show what's really at the heart. When there's nothing to be gained in this world by it, then you begin to realize where your true allegiance is. Then you begin to see the real reward that you are seeking. See, the righteousness that you practice in secret is the righteousness that matters. Who you are when nobody looks is what matters. Because then it exposes whether or not you're simply an actor on a stage or if this is truly who you are. What you do behind closed doors exposes the real integrity of your heart or even the lack thereof. Are you praying to be noticed by men? Or are you praying that your Father in Heaven would take notice of you? Again, that's the question. Who's your audience? How many of us have ever been to a prayer meeting or a church service where you hear the prayer being prayed and you're thinking, that guy who's praying is talking to me. That guy who's praying is, is, is wanting my attention to be directed towards him rather than the one who is the object of our prayers. See, the, the most spiritual prayer is the most self-forgetful prayer. It's the prayer that has its full focus on who the Lord is. Not that it's forgetful of our needs, as we'll see. A truly spiritual prayer is one that prays, as we'll see in verses 9 and following. It's, give us this day our daily bread, we're in great need. Forgive us our sins. It's one that recognizes oneself, but it also recognizes how unrighteous one truly is. We really have nothing to boast about. And so why is it that so many will pray in public and give reason to boast. You think again of the, the, the prayer of the Pharisee as, he sh- as he's shouting out loud in the synagogue, Lord, I thank you I'm not like everybody else, including this bub right here to the next to me. Is, is that really the type of prayer the Lord is looking for? Luke 18, Jesus, who walks away justified from that? Is it the Pharisee or is it the tax collector? Pray to your Father who dwells with you in the secret place. How... How interesting it is, the one who fills all space and time, the one who is not bound by space or time, the lofty one who is seated enthroned in the heavens is also said by our Savior to be the one who dwells with us in the secret place as well. Your Father in heaven is not an absentee landlord. He sees he does not need you to jump up and down on a street corner for him to take notice of you. You can go into the back room and pray, and He'll be with you. He is not an aloof deity who is only able to hear you when you do these public spectacles. He is not a deaf God. He is in no need of a microphone, so you don't have to shout. He requires no hearing aid to hear your prayers. Because He dwells with you in the secret place, you do not need a public platform to gain His attention. The smallest smallest, uh, child in this room has the exact same privilege before the throne of grace as the most seasoned saint or the most decorated dignitary 
on the face of the earth. In fact, the smallest child with who trusts in Christ, who trusts in Christ, has greater access than the most well-decorated official on the face of the earth who doesn't trust in Christ. Because Christ is the reason that we have access to enter the holy courts to begin with. It is only on the basis of Jesus' blood and righteousness that we are able to enter the throne of grace. It is not uh, a benefit that we have by right, by virtue of our birth. It is a privilege we have because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a Father in heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, who hears the cries of the weak, the insignificant, and the afflicted. The one who hears the cries of the lowly, even in the prayer closet. And that leads us to our second feature, that Jesus calls us to relinquish from our prayers. To not incorporate this as part of our prayer toolkit, as it were. And that is this, it is the mindless prattling. Again, our Savior is not condemning lengthy prayers because they are long. You read John chapter 17. It's a long prayer. You read 1 Kings chapter 8 with the dedication of the temple. You'll find long prayers. There's an entire book of prayers in the Bible known as the Psalms. And some are very, very long. Some are very short. It's not the length that's the matter here. That's not what's at issue. Jesus himself is said to have spent entire nights involved in prayer. You think of the night of Christ's betrayal. What, 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 what is the question he, he, he poses to his disciples in the garden? Couldn't you even tarry with me a single hour? So it's, it's not that Jesus is condemning long prayers because they are long. Again, he's getting to the heart of the matter. The heart, which is the, the, the very essence of what he's getting at throughout the, this whole sermon. Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Here Jesus tells us that there are those who think that the longer they talk, the more impressed God would be with their prayers. It's the old pagan approach to prayer. That's why I had 1 Kings chapter 18 read earlier. What is it that the, the, the prophets of Baal have to do all day? From morning till noon till midday and even afterwards. They're just praying over and over again this kind of mindless repetition. O Baal, answer us. Chanting over and over again, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Because why? They think because of their many long words and prayers, their mindless prattling and repetition, that their God would finally hear them. And yet, Kings goes to quite the length to say that even after that, even after all the bloodletting, all the attempts to gain their deity's attention, still they hear nothing. They huff and puff. They cut themselves with swords and lances, and still there's nothing. Elijah, in fact, mocks them for its prayer, for their prayers. He says, maybe it's Taco Tuesday. Perhaps your deity has had one too many enchiladas. But then after their public spectacle and their failure, Elijah says, well, now it's my turn. And you notice his prayer. Did you realize how long his prayer was? It was two sentences long. That's it. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and I am your servant. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know you. And then the fire falls. What a contrast in the models of prayer. God was not impressed with the, the length of Elijah's prayer, but the fact 
that Elijah trusted in his Maker. See, God is not impressed by the length of your prayers. Rather, He is impressed by the state of your heart. Your prayers are not some type of warm-up act that goads God into answering. Your prayers are not a series of incantations that, uh, if uttered long enough, they somehow mystically force God's hand to move. See, the, the pagans saw prayer as a, something of a, a contractual exchange, a business venture, a tit-for-tat, a quid pro quo. Hey, look, God, I've done all these things for you. Let me rattle off my deeds. Now here, let you do this for me. How many people today treat prayer as a business contract? I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all the other godless sinners. Look at all the things that I've done for you. Surely you must be pleased with me. Surely you will grant me my heart's desire because I deserve it. How many today treat prayer as a thoughtless enterprise, giving lip service and idle repetitions, all the while paying no heed to the fact that they are standing before the Maker of heaven and earth? They just say whatever comes into their mind. They just kind of prattle on thoughtlessly, giving no thought to the holiness of God. Hence, Solomon's own direction to us in Ecclesiastes 5, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. See, our Father in heaven does not take pleasure in prattled prayers but rather in simple prayers that issue from a sincere heart of love and faith. And I think that's what brings us back to that initial question that I had asked earlier. Why is it that prayer is so hard? Why is it that we treat prayer as, something, as all these motions to jump through? I think largely for this reason. I think prayer is difficult because prayer is an acknowledgement of our own helplessness and our own poverty. And that's not really fun to think about, is it? And people will speak of the power of prayer, and I get why people will say that, and I think in, in one sense there's truth to that. But I actually think it's more appropriate to say that the power is not found in the prayer, the power is not found in the prayer, but rather the power is found in the one who answers prayer. How many of us treat prayer as some type of magical incantation to harness some mystical force to alter our present circumstances? That is a thoroughly pagan notion. It's part of those, that mindless chatter and idle repetition, that babbling that Jesus is condemning here. Rather, prayer is, is recognizing that this is not a contractual thing. This is not a business venture. Prayer is the expression of our desires to our Father in heaven who hears us and already knows the very things that we need before we even ask of them. It's not like we have to get His attention. We pray because He calls us to pray. Not to treat God as a magic vending machine in the sky, but because He knows that you need these things. We do not pray because we are worthy. And we do not pray because God is ignorant. We pray in our unworthiness, knowing that God knows full well 
our own unworthiness and our own helplessness. And yet this Father in heaven delights to answer our prayer nonetheless, not because of any works that we have done, not because of any righteousness in us, but for the simple fact that He is our Father in heaven and that He loves us. And He loves us so much that He gave His Son to bear our sins. And if He gave His Son up for us, how would He not graciously give us all the other things that we need for life and godliness? And so even as Jesus is directing us in how not to pray, He's already now instinctively teaching us some very basic features and components of prayer. That the prayer of the righteous recognizes these two things, that the one who prays is poor in spirit. But the one to whom He prays is rich in mercy. I guess it raises another question, doesn't it? If we If God already knows what we need, then why is it that we pray? And again, this begins to chip away even more at our faulty notions of prayers. We think that uh, we we treat prayer like a hand grenade. You kind of run into the throne of grace, you toss your prayer, and you run out. But prayer is actually the main thing. Prayer is communion with God. We have needs. God delights to answer those needs. But more than that, God delights to give us himself. He is our chief reward. He is our exceedingly great reward. That's the promise he gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. And how Jesus says here that those who go before the throne of grace in private to pray to their Father, the Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. That reward is Himself. I think it's important, the centrality that the Reformed churches place in preaching and the sacraments. But both preaching and the sacraments should lead us to prayer and to praise. The purpose of the pulpit is not for me to give you another, some more info dump so you can win the latest round of Bible Jeopardy. The purpose of the pulpit is to train you to turn from sin and to turn to Christ, and to enjoy communion with God, even privately, in your own prayer closet. If the sermons don't do that, then either I have failed as a preacher, or you have failed as a hearer. It might be a mixture of both. But the Lord's Supper, baptism, it's all to remind us that we belong to God, that the reason the Father sent His Son is that we could have fellowship with Him by the Spirit. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is the enjoyment of God. That we might glorify Him. That we might glorify and enjoy Him. So prayer is the thing. That's why Jesus says, even at the end of His ministry, what is it that this house is to be known as? Not simply a house of preaching. This is to be called a house of prayer. Because communion with God is the thing. Prayer is what we were made for. And so let us not go along these false rabbit trails that so many end up going down. Those who seek uh, to make their own righteousness known in their public prayers. That's not what prayer is about. Or for those who think that they have to somehow get God's attention by prattling mindlessly and thoughtlessly 
has such a low view of God, a God who truly cares for you and already knows the things that you need, and yet has established a means whereby you could come to the throne of grace and you can ask for those things and the Lord would give them. But it's as if the Father is saying, I'll give you those, but, but stick around a while. Enjoy fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. One of my favorite books among the Puritans, I think one of the greatest works written in all kind of post outside the Bible, is John Owen's Communion with God. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. Because it reminds us that this is what we were made for. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And our hearts will remain restless until they find rest in communion with the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. This is not a contractual relationship as business partners. Rather, this is a covenantal relationship. Is that between a father and his son? You have a Father in heaven who delights to answer the prayers that you bring before Him to give you all that you need for life and for godliness. Why we pray matters. And so is how we pray. And so we see here in verses 9 to 15, six petitions that Jesus outlines that teaches us how to pray. We'll spend the next several weeks looking at those petition by petition to take our time to make sure that we learn to master the art of communion with God because this is the very thing that we have made for. Six petitions. The first three regarding God's kingdom. The things that we are called to seek first. And then the second three petitions regarding our needs. Concern for God's name, His kingdom, and His will. And then a concern for our daily food, for daily forgiveness, and for strength to endure trial and temptation. And you have a Father in heaven who delights to answer these prayers. Why would Jesus teach us to pray this if the Father said, no, I don't think I'm going to answer that today or ever? No, Jesus is is already instructing us on the things that He is directing us to pray so we might know that we have a God who is ready and able and more than eager and willing to answer those prayers. In commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle says this, that, the God, uh, that our God takes no account of the quantity of money that we give, or the quantity of words that we use. The one thing to which His all-seeing eye looks is the nature of our motives and the state of our hearts. So I've already said our Savior would not teach us to pray these things if our Father did not delight to answer them. How wonderful it is to know that God is not impressed with our social statuses. Therefore, we do not have to need, we don't need to pray ostentatiously to get His attention. How freeing it is to know that we do not have to coerce God into providing us for the things that we need because He already knows what we need and He is waiting for you to ask so that He might delight to provide you with all those things that we need. How exhilarating it is to know that the reward promised to each of us even now is a hearing before the courts of heaven because we have a high priest who has opened up a new and living way and has granted us access to heaven's courts by His precious blood. Let us pray.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that You would teach us how to pray. That we might delight in being Your children. Not just for show in front of those around us, but that we might grow and deepen in our communion with the Maker of heaven and earth, even in quiet, behind closed doors. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.